When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Last week was one of the worst political weeks in a long time. We'll talk about it with Tom Frank. He's got a new book out. It's called Rendezvous with Oblivion. And for something completely different, we'll speak with the visionary anthropologist David Graeber. A couple of years ago, he asked the question on the Internet, does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world? He got a million online views in 17 different languages, and thousands of people wrote saying the answer for them was no. Their work was meaningless. What does this mean for our understanding of capitalism and for our politics? We'll talk about it later in the show. But first, all the news in the past seven days has not been bad. We have reasons for hope in this dark time. And for that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. Well, everybody these this week is talking about Trump's Supreme Court pick. He's already interviewing people left and right faster than ever before. You think it's possible, it's possible to block Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick, even though the Republicans control the Senate, even if John McCain is absent by a vote of 50 to 49. The arithmetic there seems pretty clear to me. How do you add this up? Well, I'm using the new math. <laughs> Look, here's, here's the reality of the Senate and also the reality of our times. And it's something that, that we have to put into the mix. We cannot talk ourselves out of fights that must be fought and that can be won. The 51 Republicans in the U.S. Senate are not all the same. You have in the mix in the Senate uh, at least two members, Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who have in the past broken with the Trump administration and with Mitch McConnell on major issues, issues as big as health care reform, which was really, you know, one of the, the centerpieces of Republican political activity over the last better part of a decade. And so they are opportunities, not guarantees. I'm not telling you for sure that they will do the right thing, but there are people who can do the right thing. And Collins has said she will not vote for someone who is demonstrably opposed to the right to choose. The obvious objection is Trump is working from a list of potential nominees, all of whom our opponents of Roe v. Wade, that's how you get on the Republican list. So what have I got wrong here? You got nothing wrong, John. And so right off the bat, 
Collins has given us a statement we can work with. Now, of course, she included wiggle room there yeah. with that, that horrible word, you know, demonstrably or demonstrated, right? You know, she, she said, oh, yeah, yeah, obviously I need some higher level of evidence than reality. <laughs> um, and so the job of activists in a circumstance like this is to provide that higher level of evidence to focus arguments on her and to make her hold her to account. And so it is completely logical and in fact, fully necessary to pour energy into, you know, building up that argument on the ground in Maine with her constituents, making it real and making it strong. The same goes for Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. Remember, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska has also broken with Trump on some key issues, not merely on the health care vote, but also on the nomination of Betsy DeVos, for instance. And so we have people who've shown an ability to break with the administration at key points. Again, in Alaska, Murkowski is somebody who has beaten the far right, beaten the social conservatives. They defeated her in a primary. She came back and won her seat as a write-in candidate. So it's completely logical to pour energy into building up these arguments, doing it on the ground there. And the first tier duty is to create state-based arguments that reach them. And so, yes, you focus on choice, on gay rights on uh, affirmative action, some of the most vulnerable areas, you put those front and center because that's essential. Those are good organizing issues. But then you also build the issues out. If you're, if you're talking to Collins in Maine, you focus on some issues that the court may address that are of concern to Maine. That's what organizing and activism is about. And I'll tell you, if, if the progressive movements, if, if, uh, pro-choice groups, pro-environment groups, pro-worker groups, pro-civil rights groups, pro-civil liberties groups, don't go to the mat on this one, which is literally definition of the Supreme Court of the United States. Where would you do it? At the end of the day, the heart and soul struggle is going to take place in, in Portland, Maine, and in Anchorage, Alaska, and in smaller cities and smaller towns of those states. And, and you have to build arguments that work in those places. Of course you include choice. And I think uh, also really dial up the volume on LGBTQ rights because it's clear America has moved to a place of sympathy and support for uh, the rights of lesbians and gays. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so as a result, you know, don't, don't hesitate on emphasizing those issues. But also don't, don't you know, stop there keep going, keep digging deeper into the records of who, uh, record of whoever Trump will nominate in a few days on antitrust issues, on public land issues, on ag issues, on worker issues. The Trump people, they think that they've got a mobilizing issue for their base, for people who may be frustrated with Trump, may be disappointed with Trump, but they'll at least come out because they'll be excited about a Supreme Court fight. Well, that plays both ways. And the fact of the matter is, Organizing that goes into winning this Supreme Court fight, organizing in August, September, October, whenever the vote actually comes, because McConnell's suggesting it can come before the election. But organizing that goes into this can so easily transfer into organizing for the election Excellent. in states across this country. Excellent. And I just want to underline here, the, so the fight is not just to win 
Collins' vote against Trump's nominee by fighting in Portland, not just to win Murkowski's vote by fighting in Anchorage. We also have to worry about North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp, Democrat, West Virginia, Democrat, Joe Manchin, Claire McCaskill in Missouri. All three of those Democrats voted to confirm Neil Gorsuch, despite the fact that he was nominated in complete violation of all Senate history and protocol. So we have a problem not only in Portland and Anchorage, but in in North Dakota, in Missouri, uh, and in West Virginia. And possibly Montana, uh, although I think John Tester is actually going to be pretty good on this issue, I hope. And also possibly Indiana, where Joe Donnelly is in a tough race for re-election. And there's going to be tremendous pressure, not merely from uh, Trump and McConnell and all the conservatives, but also from, you know, some of the compromise at the first possibility Democrats, right? You know, folks who say, oh, you know, save the seat. It's the most important thing. But with all due respect, if you surrender the Supreme Court in order to save a Democratic seat, what, what is the point, John? Yeah. What are you saving yourself for? What fight, what fight down the line are you saving yourself for? You know, the fact of the matter is, this is the fight. This is why you want to have progressive folks, you want to have people of goodwill in the United States Senate. And frankly, in this case, fighting with Trump, why you would generally want to have Democrats. The fact is, if you can hold those 49 Democrats, and it's really vital to hold them, if one of them goes bad, if one of them goes over to McConnell and Trump, then it, the likelihood of getting Collins and Murkowski is substantially reduced. But if you can hold those 49 then you have, uh, you know, two opportunities here. You know, this is just, this is a fight that can be done. And people who, you know, just imagine uh, that you, you can't possibly convince Collins to do the right thing, or imagine that you can't possibly convince Murkowski to do the right thing, or frankly, if we recall the health care vote, Imagine that John McCain wouldn't necessarily do the right thing if he, you know, has a a rebound and comes back. You know, you just don't give up on, you don't, in a fight like this, you don't give up on people. What you do is you look at every opening because you are talking not about, you know, five versus four, six versus three on the Supreme Court or four, four balances with a swing, whatever. What you're talking about is the right to choose the rights of loving couples to marry, the rights of uh, people who have been historically discriminated against to have you know, some protection in the workplace and some hope of advancement. We're talking about gerrymandering. We're talking about the structures of our elections. We're talking about voting rights itself. I mean, all of these issues are in play, as well as a huge host of economic issues. We are in a transformational moment as regards our economy, digital revolution, automation revolution, the courts will be involved in a host of decisions that shape our future. And if you give up the court today, if you say, oh, we just can't win this fight, let's hope that maybe in November we get a better result. That's a surrender that could haunt progressives, could haunt the United States for decades to come. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thanks, John. Always great to have you on the show pleasure. 
Last week was a really bad week for us. New York Times op-ed columnist Michelle Goldberg wrote on Sunday about what she called this very dark time when the news from Washington often makes her sick with despair. We feel the same way, so we called Tom Frank. He's good at explaining things. He's founder of The Baffler, former columnist for The Wall Street Journal and Harper's, and a regular contributor now to The Guardian. He's written many books, and he's got a new one out now. It's called Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Tom Frank, welcome back. I'm glad to be here, John. Well, there was a time when Democrats controlled the White House and both houses of Congress. That was 2009 and 2010, eight years ago. How did we get from there to here so quickly? Your book, oh my God. Your oh my God. book Rendezvous with Oblivion, deals... <laughs> precisely with that question, why did millions of ordinary Americans support Donald Trump? You know, one answer is they were driven to madness by the presence of a black man in the White House. You don't agree that this is the most important explanation. Why not? Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, there certainly are plenty of people who hated Barack Obama. And, I mean, I remember with a sort of feeling of shock the first time I encountered one of them. Yeah, those people those people definitely exist, and they were definitely loud during the 2016 election. And you had – since then, you've had a kind of a great awakening of, you know, racism in this country, you know, the, like the march in Charlottesville and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think that that is the, – the people who really swung this election – in my in my view, and you know, this is something you could argue about all day and all night. But are those counties that the sort of uh, white working class voters in those upper midwestern states? A lot of those counties, and a lot of these are people who who voted for Obama the first time around and the second time around. And you can track this change. Um, and if that change had not, and, and also let's add into that a lot of black working class people who voted for Obama and who were not enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton. And between those two groups, uh, that's basically the story of what happened in 2016. Or I should say that's a story of what happened in 2016. Well, that's certainly where we can look to find the the swing votes. The, the, yeah. And, you know, oh, and by the way, I, I mean, I can, I can go on and on about this for a long time, but I didn't even realize that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee until it was almost over. And then I started, you know, I started reading up on him and everything I read said, you know, this guy is running this one note racist campaign. And uh, then I, so I was like, huh, that's that's weird. And I went and watched a whole bunch of videos on YouTube. I binge watched a whole bunch of Trump, <laughs> you know, these videos of his of his uh his rallies. And I was surprised that in addition to the bigotry, which is, you know, loud, as I said before, his, his bigotry, which is open and is disgusting. Uh, he also talked about a lot of uh, subjects that were very familiar to me, uh, deindustrialization and, and trade deals. And when he talked about the trade deals, it's as though the guy was lifting his script from like AFL-CIO talking points. It was, it was bizarre. And he has stuck with that theme up until um, quite recently here. I mean, he talks about it, about trade and about deindustrialization all the time. This is one of the things that really sunk uh, Hillary Clinton was Trump's 
the way he talked about trade and about deindustrialization. This was really the Achilles heel of the Democrats. So, so okay, you're a pundit, so we have to ask you, what's going to happen now that he's imposing tariffs? Are the steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada and Mexico going to reopen that carrier plant in Indianapolis? What will the Trump supporters say when the EU imposes $3 billion in tariffs on American bourbon, American jeans, and American motorcycles. What will they say in Iowa when China taxes the import of pork and soybeans? Uh, I know. It's, the guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's absolutely incompetent. Being able to say, you know, saying that NAFTA uh, was designed to deindustrialize places and to, and to weaken to, to weaken the bargaining power of workers is a true statement. To then do what Donald Trump is doing, I mean, it's almost unrelated. It has nothing to do with it. A, a better example. So China is a currency manipulator. This is like well-established. People have written about this at great length. It's, it's, it's well-known. that When he talked about that, yes, that is, that is true. When he talked about that on the campaign trail. So what do you do, John, with a currency manipulator? Well, you, you, know, you can take them to the WTO and, and you know, uh, uh, demand some kind of, of, of redress, right? You can uh, demand that from them directly, and you can say, if we don't get that, then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And if we don't, you know, and eventually you might wind up slapping tariffs on this, that, and the other. Well, Trump skipped all those steps. <laughs> it just went straight to the tariffs. And it's not even clear what his demands are on the Chinese. The whole thing is, the whole thing is completely half-baked. He doesn't know what he's doing. That, by the way, that was always clear from the beginning, even when I, when I wrote that story about him back in, uh, in 2016, that he, he was very good at expressing people's anger about the trade issue, but it was never clear that he understood trade at all. This could get bad. I mean, him and his stupid trade wars. Uh, on the plus side, it hasn't gotten bad yet. And, and uh, you know, it seems unlikely to me that Donald Trump would really do something that would injure his billionaire friends, you know, which this has the potential to do. So one of the things you've been saying now for a couple of years uh, is there, despite all his bluster, lies, incompetence, despite everything obnoxious and horrible about him, there is, quote, something real about Trump. And one of those things, as you put it, is that for millions of Americans, there still has not been a recovery from the recession that brought Obama into office. Uh, and the responsibility for that does indeed lie on the Democrats and indeed on Obama himself. That's one of the themes of your book, that the Democrats could have done a lot to bring about recovery from that recession and that, that they failed to do so and that that's really the background to Trump. That's Yes, that is exactly right. And that's you put that very well. And I think about this all the time. You know, you read that quote from Michelle Goldberg, by the way, whose columns in the New York Times I really enjoy. I think she's great. But I have that same feeling when I think about the Obama years, that, that sort of feeling of... of you know, I, I just I get so angry about it because when he came into office in 2009, and he was the hero, and he was so eloquent, and he had the he had the country behind him, and he had both houses of Congress, and he had the meanest man, the meanest, cleverest man in American politics, Rahm Emanuel, at his side. This is a guy that should have been unstoppable, uh, Barack Obama. He should have been able to get whatever he wanted. 
And he should have been, I mean, he came into office at a time of deep crisis, uh, you know, the financial crisis. We're heading into a deep recession. He should have been the Franklin Roosevelt of our time. Yeah. That's what I thought he was going to be. Yeah. And that's what I, uh, you know, he could have had with a little, you know, a little kind of Lyndon Johnson political hardball, could have got whatever he wanted uh, through Congress, but he frittered that away. And the frustration to me is that now we are back with this. It's like it's like it never happened. We're back with the culture wars. You know, Trump picking fights about the flag. Trump picking fights with the NFL. You know, Trump naming Supreme Court judges. We're right back to where we started. A Republican is back in, and he is. You know, and it's we had this fantastic opportunity. You know, Roosevelt in the 30s managed the crisis so well and did so well by Americans that the Democrats had a majority in, in uh, the House of Representatives from, from then until the 1990s, you know, for 60 years with, with, with two brief interruptions. Uh, you know, that's the power of that kind of good government. And Obama had that in his hands, and it slipped through his fingers. And I just – it, it it makes me so furious, not furious. It makes me, I don't know what, I don't know what I can say about it. It's, it's, there, there's something so depressing that now we're just back where we started, you know, and that Republican governance was not permanently discredited by the crash of 08, which it should have been, uh, you know, George W. Bush should still be in infamy. Instead, we regard him as, as a good guy nowadays. Yeah. You know, we wish he was back. So, so, it is just like it drives me crazy. But exactly the way, what you said is exactly is exactly true. That people were still desperate eight years after the financial crisis, or however many years, and desperate enough to elect this charlatan into the White House in 2016. And by the way, de- still desperate. I mean, look at what's going on out there in America. Nation columnist Gary Young went back to Muncie, Indiana, a year after Trump was elected. He had spent the election season there, and he asked Trump supporters what they thought now. Most of them said they didn't really much like Trump as a person. They wouldn't want their kids to grow up to be like Trump. They wouldn't even really want to have a beer with Trump, but they still hoped he might do something that would help them with their problems, and they didn't think that Hillary would have. Yeah, that's. I think that's almost exactly right. That certainly uh, dovetails with everything that I've read uh, about the election. Uh, Trump was the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time, and Hillary was the second most unpopular. In 2016, as the Trump election was approaching, you published that book, called Listen Liberal, you warned about everything that we have talked about, everything the Democrats were doing wrong and needed to change. Tom, did the liberals listen? They didn't listen then, John. They're not listening now. And as far as I can tell, there is no, there is no listening program on the horizon. John, there wasn't even a postmortem after this election. I don't think they even intend to, uh, after 2016, I don't even think they intend to... Um, you know, there's a real problem with the Democratic Party. These are people who are uh, out of touch. Uh, they, a lot of their leadership is very elderly. Um, they are determined to not yield. They don't understand what is happening in America. And now remember something, the populist wave of 2016 wasn't just in the Republican Party. It was in the Democratic Party as well. Yes. 
you know, the Bernie Sanders movement, and they they managed to uh, the Republicans were not able to stop Trump, but the Democrats were able to stop Bernie Sanders, and you'd think they would, you know, after the debacle that enfolded them that year, you'd think they would look back at that moment and say, you know, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we should have played it differently. Uh, maybe we should be more open to this kind of politics, but they're not. And every indication is that that Bernie Sanders-style uh, populism is still rolling in this country. Those people are still mad. Tom Frank, his new book is Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Thank you, Tom. John, it is my pleasure. Does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world? David Graeber posted that question on the Internet, and a million people clicked on it, and then a lot of them posted answers. Now his book about that question and those answers is out. It's called Bullshit Jobs. David Graeber was an Occupy activist, and he teaches anthropology at the London School of Economics. He wrote the book Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and he publishes in Harper's The Baffler in The Guardian. We reached him today in London. David Graeber, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, you argue that huge numbers of people, especially in North America and Europe, work at jobs that are basically pointless and that the people doing them secretly know their jobs don't need to be performed. Consultants, communications coordinators, PR people, financial strategists, corporate lawyers. But I thought the whole point of capitalism, the thing that makes it such a ruthless and efficient engine of profit, is the the speed-ups, the downsizing, the layoffs, the replacement of human labor with machines, eliminating human labor wherever possible. Your concept of bullshit jobs suggests that that understanding of capitalism is deeply wrong. Yes, either that or the system that we're in is rapidly no longer resembling capitalism, at least as, as normally conceived. I should make clear that, I mean, this is true, that, that speed-ups, crunches, I mean, all of that has been happening in the 80s, but the pressure has fallen on blue-collar workers, not white-collar workers, on, on wage earners and not salary earners. So, so in effect, what's happened is that they're just super-exploiting anybody who actually is productive, but at the same time, they're hiring more and more people who just kind of sit around making their boss feel important. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the future as foreseen by John Maynard Keynes back in 1930. That's the opening of your new book. Keynes thought that by, what, the year 2000, capitalism would have be... 2030. 2030. That capitalism would have become so productive that the average work week would be 15 hours. So people who who think about this say, most of them say, the reason Keynes turned out to be wrong was that he failed to see consumer society. He failed to see that given the choice between working fewer hours and getting more stuff, we have chosen the latter. Is, isn't that true, that we've all fallen for consumerism? Well, you know, that's the funny thing. We, we have this idea in our heads, but if you look at the kind of jobs that have been created... A lot of the jobs that existed in the 1930s are gone, and new jobs have been created. But those jobs, you know, are not exactly you know selling each other designer sushi or designing iPhones. 
actually very few of them are involved in things like that. We have this rhetoric about the consumer economy, especially the service economy. Since the 80s, people have been saying, oh, we're shifting from an industrial to a service economy. But when people talk about services, what they imagine is you know, people are serving each other coffee or cutting each other's hair, giving each other elaborate massages or whatnot. But actually, the funny thing is if you really look at the numbers, actual services haven't changed at all. It's been about 20% of the workforce doing those kind of services. And, you know, there's been a shift from people doing it in private households to, to, to people doing it in shops. But basically, aside from that, there's been no change. What there has been is an enormous growth in clerical, managerial, and administrative work. And that's exactly the zone where so many people think that their jobs are totally pointless. Well, one obvious issue here is who decides whether a job is pointless or a job is necessary. And the mainstream view of that is the market is the best judge of that. People are willing to pay for better iPhones and designer sushi. Uh, and so are right, the... But that's not where it's coming from. I mean, as I say, the, the, those jobs are not making iPhones or selling sushi. That's stayed about the same or even declined if you're talking about manufacturing. It's, it's clerical administrative jobs. Now, who's paying for that? Well, my explanation is um, it's, it's a result of trickle-down economics to a large degree. Uh, and it's a result of the moving to a more financialized rent-seeking economy. So, so, for example, you know, if you have an old Keynesian-style stimulus, the one thing both left and right agree on is more jobs is good, right? We have as many people working as possible. Yes. It's a pretty dubious premise, but like, well, let's allow that. Um, the left solution has generally been to give money to ordinary people, give money to working-class or middle-class people, and you know, working-class people will buy food and, and, and necessities, or poor people will buy, buy necessities. Middle-class people, maybe they'll be the ones who will get the iPhones or they'll get swimming pools. But either way, you know, you're employing people. People who own companies will, will hire people to make those things because there is demand. Uh, and if you just cut taxes and say, oh, rich people are job creators, we're going to give them more money, and they will make up their minds, oh, they'll hire people and, and create because they are job creators. Well, what's going to happen? They're not going to hire people to make manufacturers if there's nobody to buy those manufacturers. And in fact, just recently, you know, when Trump was announcing his big tax cuts, they asked a whole bunch of manufacturers, uh, are you going to hire more people when you get a tax cut? And of course, almost all of them said no. But what will they do? Well, they, they know they're under pressure to, to create jobs. So, so what they do is they hire basically flunkies, the equivalent of feudal retainers. They feel a certain responsibility to spread the money around, so they just Get people to make them look and feel good. And a lot of these jobs, um, you have to bear in mind that, that in a large corporation, the power and prestige of an executive is largely measured by how many subordinates they have, how many yes. people they have working on it. Yes. Well, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> good point. Well, kind of the, the underlying basic question here is how do you define a bullshit job? Your initial Facebook post had a brilliant solution is you just ask people, do you consider you your job to be a bullshit job? And uh, you found out quite a bit just that way. Am I right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I should make it very clear. I do not consider it my business to tell anybody who thinks they're doing something useful in the world that they're wrong. On the other hand, if somebody tells me, no, my job shouldn't exist, well, who would know better? I mean, I suppose it's possible there are some people who are doing something useful and are unaware of it, but it seems unlikely. It seems much more likely that people are, you know, if they're going to be mistaken at all, 
they're going to be mistaken the other way. But you know, I'm not going to argue with them. Let's just assume everybody's right. Just to, you know, as uh, since nobody else knows better, as a sort of starting position. Well, what do we find? And we find extraordinary numbers of people feel that their jobs really are useless and pointless. They did a survey, YouGov did a survey in the UK and discovered 37% of all workers said, my job makes no meaningful contribution to the world at all. Uh, Holland, they actually came up with 40%. Yeah. These are very high. I mean, it's yeah. way higher than I meant. I, I was thinking it would be 15 or 20, to be perfectly honest. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my God. Well, think about all the people who would just never say that. You're never going to have an auto mechanic or a nurse or a bus driver or a musician even for that matter. You know, they're not going to say that. So, so who is? Basically, anybody who's sitting there in an office who you might be wondering if they secretly think their job shouldn't exist, I would say this shows they almost certainly do. And what do you think are the moral and psychological and political effects of working at a job that you consider to be bullshit? Well, it's disastrous. I mean, people talk about the rise of clinical depression. I think something like 49% of all Americans will have some episode of clinical mental illness in their lives. Overwhelming majority of that is depression. And people tie that to consumerism. And I'm not saying that there isn't a connection. But, you know, what depression is about is meaninglessness and purposelessness. If, if people are sitting there, like, in a literal situation, you know, of meaninglessness and purposelessness, why is it surprising they feel depressed? In fact, you get depression, you get stress, you have terrible workplace behavior. Um, a lot of people commented on, you know, when people have a common purpose that they think is legitimate, they treat each other okay. You know, there's a certain camaraderie, there's cooperation. But the moment everybody is secretly aware that they're laboring in complete meaninglessness, you know, that there's no purpose in what they're doing, people start just becoming awful to each other. The bullying, workplace harassment, just awful behavior uh, increases. So, so and, and then you get between the depression for the meaninglessness and the bad behavior the meaninglessness causes, then you get psychosomatic illness. Lots of people reported all these strange conditions that would just vanish the moment they got a real job. And what about the politics of this? What do people do with their resentment and, and the depression? Who do, they, who do they see as responsible if they think about that? Well, you see, this is something that I think is, is really pernicious and we really don't talk about that our society has become sort of held together. Our politics has been held together by these resentments. And the resentments of people who get to do something that's perceived as real. Okay, so you have that one type of resentment. Working class people you know, resent the people they imagine as grabbing all the really good, useful jobs or creative jobs. But then people in the bullshit jobs, they resent the working class. And, and you really see this. Um, like, why is it that the only people who really took a hit after the 2008 crash, it wasn't bankers, it was auto workers. You know, there's a sense of like, well, you guys get to make cars. That's a real job. You want like middle class benefits and vacations too? That's not fair. Um, <laughs> teachers. You know, why do people get mad at teachers? And I, I've actually heard right wing activists say, well, we tried making an issue out of the school administrators first, but it, it didn't catch on. But then as soon as we talked about the teachers, everybody got really mad and angry. I mean, there seems to be this idea, like, you get to teach kids. That's real work, you know? And, and people even say, we don't want teachers to be motivated by money. You know, we want by altruistic self-sacrificing people to be teachers. How dare you demand a middle-class lifestyle? 
you seem to have found a general rule about pay in our society that the jobs that really benefit other people, nurses, child care workers, home health aides, teachers, garbage collectors, mm. are the poorly paid ones. What, what, what can be done to eliminate the meaningless and unnecessary jobs and reward the workers who do the essential jobs that actually help people? Well, you know, I really think there needs to be a moral transformation about what we think is valuable in work to begin with. And I think this is really important. I've coined the phrase the revolt of the caring classes. And I think globally we're seeing this more and more. The working class, even in the 19th century, you know, there's, it's not like most working class people were factory workers. All these jobs like caretakers and caregivers and uh, you know, most work involves maintaining things, taking care of things, fixing things, cleaning things, more than it involves producing or making things. So we have this sort of worked idea that, like, work is production. Well, you know, yes, some work is production, but a lot of you, – you make a cup once, you wash it a thousand times, right? Yeah. Most yeah. work is actually keeping things the same and, and taking care of things. And, and, and I think we need to rethink our, our, our whole idea of what value is, what social value is, what economic value is. Ultimately, all value-producing labor is a form of care. I think we need to look at the feminist literature and, and just start over again and, and, and think about what is really valuable in work. And, and if we do that, we realize, we'll realize that we're sort of cutting edge of the proletariat now, the working classes, are caregivers. When I was involved in Occupy, uh, there was a blog called We Are the 99%, and people who could, didn't have time to actually take part in the occupations, they're working too hard to indicate their support by making these little placards telling their stories. And it was really remarkable. Because almost all of them had some variation of the same story, which was, I wanted to have a job which actually benefits society. You know, I could have been some jerk and gone off and made a lot of money. I could have become a lawyer, you know, financier, but, you know, I wanted to do something useful. So I got involved in teaching, or I got involved in healthcare, or I got involved in taking care of old people or disabled people or providing social services, whatever it might be. But the thing is, if you want to actually care for others, then they'll pay you so little and put you so deeply in debt, you can't even take care of your own family. Mm -hmm. I think this is ridiculous. And it was that ind indignation which really drove the protest more than anything else. I think we tell the history, uh, you know, that's that was the first moment of this kind of revolt of the current classes. You look at the, the big strikes that are happening. You know, here in the UK, it's cleaner strikes everywhere. In France, suddenly um, nursing home workers are rebelling. This has never happened before in French history. In America, of course, we're having the teachers' strikes. I think this is the wave of the future. The book is Bullshit Jobs. The author is David Graeber. David, fantastic stuff. Thanks for talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. Finally, how to understand World Cup soccer. That's the topic of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. Dave will be talking about what makes the World Cup an unparalleled theater for nationalism, international conflict, and human interconnectedness. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books 
and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.